Imagine walking along the beach with your husband on your anniversary. Suddenly, someone wearing a ski mask robs you both, murdering your high school sweetheart before your very eyes. I'm M. William Phelps, an investigative journalist and author of 40-plus true crime books. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. It's June 9th, 1998, just before midnight. The moon is out. The ocean water is crashing along the shore of picturesque Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. 21-year-old Kimberly Renee Poole and her husband, 24-year-old Brent, are out celebrating their third wedding anniversary. What could go wrong, right? On paper, this seems like some sort of fairy tale. And she goes by her middle name, Renee. So Renee was gorgeous. A thick mane of brunette hair, long and curly with olive skin, hazel eyes, and a truly inviting smile. They married young, and when you're just starting out, it can be hard to make ends meet. Renee worked at the Silver Fox nightclub, and some said that it was Brent who suggested that she work there. You know, nightclub might be a, a bit of a misnomer because the Silver Fox was a gentleman's club. A strip joint, come on, where Renee worked as a topless dancer. By just 19 years old, Renee had a daughter with Brent, and she's raising the child during the day and working at the club at night to help pay the bills. But let's go back to that 1998 summer night as the couple is vacationing with their young daughter in Myrtle Beach. As Renee and Brent are walking along the beach, the first stop is like this dunes area, kind of secluded. One thing leads to another, and as you do when you're young newlyweds, they have sex on the beach. So the moon is like the only light that they have as they're walking along the beach afterward. And they're heading back to their hotel room, and it's about midnight. Renee spots this man dressed in a ski mask and all black, and he's approaching them. Now, here's where things, according to her, happen really fast. He wrestles Brent to the ground. Bang! He shoots him once in the head. And then she says the gun goes off two more times as they struggle. The man then takes off. Renee immediately runs to beach patrol, flags someone down, and within minutes, a call for help goes out. Brent held on for about an hour at the hospital before he died from his wounds. Renee, a new widow, is left with a daughter to raise. It's a heartbreaking tale, but as we know, there's always more to a story like this. You know, Kimberly played the domestic, doting mother and housewife pretty well. Cleaning, cooking dinner for Brent, taking care of their child, meeting neighborhood moms at the park to chat it up. But some said that was a facade, right? Because when Renee was home alone, while Brent worked his job as a mechanic, she was often engaging in sexual escapades with a series of lovers, some men, some women. So Renee is really not who she purports to be on the outside. She has this whole secret life going on on the inside. And we know where secrets are, trouble lurks. Dum-dum. 
But two can play that game. Reports also claim that Brent was stepping out. And here we have two young parents, I mean, in their early 20s, struggling to get by, living paycheck to paycheck. Times are getting tighter, tougher. The stress is high in the household. Look, I know what this is like. I mean, I was married by the time I was 19, and truly, I had no idea or directions on how to be a husband, better yet, a father. Now, I dealt with things differently. Uh, I didn't cheat. I'm not a cheater, but I drank, you know, and that kind of uh, numbed the stress a little bit for me. But, you know, you're having kids at 20 years old. You're having a hard time making ends meet. Being that young and married is difficult. Money is always the issue in this situation. It's a common source of argument, especially for Brent and Renee. You know, the the cat's out of the bag in, in this whole situation because they both knew things weren't great. And I have to believe that they both knew the other was stepping out. But leading up to that June 9, 1998 attack on the beach, Renee and Brent seemed to be working on their marriage and trying to reconcile. But as Brent fought for his life in the hospital, Renee was asked to come down to the police department to give a statement about what happened. This is typical procedure. Nothing is out of the ordinary here, despite what you might read online about this case, if you do. Renee, quote, fully cooperated and was honest and forthcoming about her previous affairs and troubles in her marriage, end quote. Yet as detectives ask her questions, there was something about Renee Poole that they could not ignore. Let's take a break and we'll be right back. As Renee Poole is questioned by two different detectives at two different times the morning after the murder, June 10th, it's 12.45 a.m. and then again, At 3.37 a.m., she gives an account of that day and what happened on the beach close to midnight. That's, Phelps, I got to say, that's so late to be giving not only a first statement, obviously you have to do it while it's fresh in your mind, but to be giving a second statement at like close to four in the morning. So that's Catherine Law. She's my executive producer. She'll be joining me from time to time. Hi, guys. And she's great. Oh. You know, lots of things can happen in that situation. Mm. And Mm -hmm. it's exactly what what occurs. In the first two statements, Renee says she and Brent had seen multiple groups of people as they walked around that night. There was a group of people at an ice cream shop, which didn't seem to bother them all that much. And then there were this group of young kids hanging out at a store where they bought that towel so they could have sex on the beach. Later on, into the night, as Renee's being interviewed, this is the account she gives. A masked man had made them both lie face down on the sand. He'd taken their wedding rings and other jewelry and $50 cash Brent had on them. She claims that during the commotion of the attack, she heard two shots, turned around, and saw the guy running away. So it's a little different. Yeah. I mean, we we have a different yeah. account. Then I saw him shoot my husband in the head and then two more shots went off right. and then he ran away. But you have to attribute this to maybe it's the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. She's given a statement. She's crying. She's a mess. Her husband's murdered. What is she going to do? Oh, yeah. I remember this now. Right. 
Right. But if you're a detective, you know, the truth is infallible. The truth is a rock. It's inside you. Mm. You don't have to remember Mm -hmm. it. You know, you hear me say this a lot. Detectives are thinking at this point that, you know, she's hiding something. Mm -hmm. And the other thing we talk about in these statements is they noted how unemotional Renee was when she first came to the police station. So Mm -hmm. it's not a distraught wife who's just lost her husband. This is a woman who's calm as a leaf falling from a tree, right? And then another observation, how detailed the statements feel that she gives. People in this situation, and we're talking hours now, not days, hours after a traumatic bloody murder, she's spewing details. And and that doesn't happen at this point, okay? The other part of this for me is she's not demanding to be with her dying husband at all. Remember, they pull him off the beach, he's still alive. He's fighting for his life. She goes right down to the police station to give an interview, not right to the hospital to be with the guy who's losing blood and dying. Do we know if that was the police saying, hey, you got to come give a statement right now? Or if it was more her saying, hey, let's go do this? It was definitely the police. Okay. Yeah. Because they want, you know, despite what's happened, they want to get the raw story from you know, they're worried. Do they have some madman running around on the beach killing tourists, right? Right. We don't necessarily give such detailed accounts while in distress, immediately after such a traumatic event occurs in our lives. With trauma, we really recall pockets of things, especially the most awful. I mean, look, her husband is a guy she claims that she's desperately trying to reconcile with. He's brutally murdered in a dramatic way within feet from her, right? She's holding his hand basically as this guy comes up. And according to what she's now saying, she just barely escapes with her own life, okay? So here's a woman who's calm, very few tears, but lots of detail. If I'm a cop, if I'm an investigator, I'm having a big problem with this. And it's not evidence of anything nefarious, Right. I feel like almost the details are, to me, more of a red flag than the lack of emotion. Because while we do see some people who like, you know, your Scott Petersons of the world who are just like, don't ever have any reaction. I feel like what movies get wrong is that someone finds out their kid died or they find out somebody died and they immediately burst into tears. But in my experience, that's not how grief has worked for me in the past. A lot of times it's like, You absorb it and it might be later that day or a day or two or a week or whatever until it sinks in. Yeah, you're exactly right. I I mean, if if I can recall a personal experience, I remember I was teaching adult ed publishing class and I got a call in the middle of teaching. And the only reason I answered it is because my brother was in hospice and my my other brother told me he he died. He just died. Mm, mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. it wasn't an immediate, you know... It was a slow process. It was, hey, I got I to gotta stop the class. I got to get to the hospital. Yeah. And you've heard me talk about this on the show. And if you go back to earlier episodes, you can hear me go into detail. But when I took the call when my sister-in-law was murdered, um, yes, we were at odds w- with each other. But uh, I-, I remember being on the phone in my kitchen and just going, wow. Yeah. W- wow. Yeah. So, look, people react to traumatic events in their life different ways. 
That's what makes us human beings, right? So Mm -hmm. we shouldn't judge anybody for the way they act. The other issue investigators were up against is that there was a possible serial attacker targeting tourists on the beach. Every tourist town worries about this happening. I've written books about Ocean City, Maryland, you know, uh, Cape Cod. I mean, all different places. They worry about this stuff. I mean, it's literally exactly like in Jaws, right? Where we can't tell anybody because they'll all leave the beach. Yeah. I mean, so they have a time window here. Detectives, like, if there's a guy running around shooting tourists and robbing them, right? Yeah. We, we got to get word out first thing in the morning. At this point, there was no evidence to hold Renee. I mean, nothing proves she did anything. So she's allowed to leave the station. So Renee takes her daughter and they leave Myrtle Beach uh, to go home to South Carolina. But as investigators dig into the case, one of the investigators felt, you know, as he thinks about what she said, that there were holes in her statement they needed to fill before they could move on. As they weighed Renee's statements against the crime scene evidence, some things did not add up. Her detailed account didn't match physical evidence, such as imprints in the sand, lack of fingerprints. Something just wasn't right here for the detectives. So what they do is they make plans to go interview Renee again a week or so later. Now, during this third interview, she mentions a man named John Boyd Frazier for the first time. She claims she had a long-term affair with Frazier, but ended things a month prior to Brent's murder. So, you know, this is not a huge leap for cops to jump from the affair to murder, especially when the husband of a woman who's admittedly been having an affair is killed in such a violent way. And it's a man, obviously, and he's dressed in all black. So police looked into Frazier, and here is what they uncover about him immediately. Chubby-cheeked Frazier was in his early 30s when he and Renee began their affair. He was a loner who worked as a DJ in Winston-Salem bars, hanging out at the club where Renee danced topless. This guy, to me, just sounds like a keeper. I can, I can understand why Renee had a thing for him. So you might say they had time to get to know each other. Frazier had been in trouble before. He was accused of assaulting a former girlfriend who later dropped the charges. He had one child with a former girlfriend who claimed Frazier was one of those guys who talked a lot of tough guy shit but never did anything. Quite interesting, Frazier worked in tech and had an obsession with Disney. Yep, Disney. He dreamed of becoming a Disney animator and he had this really creepy, wild, large collection of Disney figurines, toys, and movies. I mean, I have to say, I am a Disney fan. I am wearing a sweatshirt right now that is a reference (laughs) to Disney princesses and evil queens right now that says, my other body is a weathered old crone. Um, (laughs) So I get the obsession with Disney, but I mean, it was like a thing. But you, you also have purple hair. I mean, so I do. I also <laughs> I have very Cheshire cat hair. I have like pink and purple uh, hair right okay, now. Okay, <laughs> So, but, you know, we're talking about a guy who's in his 30s, yes. you know, I, I, now yeah. if I'm looking at this, you know, my mind goes to 30 year old guy, sometimes mechanic, sometimes IT guy yeah. lives in his mother's basement, DJ. eats Cheetos has an Oculus and plays, you know, on that thing and collects Disney figurines and 
is a serial killer of some sort. I mean, he just yeah. screams of the cliched serial killer, but he's not. <laughs> Renee actually moved in with this prize catch Frazier for a time with her daughter. Well, I mean, why wouldn't she? The daughter could play with all of the figurines, number one. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then she went back to Brent after two weeks. So, you know, this is a, a love triangle. And to detectives, they're not laughing about it. They're taking this shit very seriously, this love triangle. Because now we have motive, we have opportunity, we have everything's fallen into place. Also something else. Brent had a $100,000 life insurance policy on himself. Ding, ding, ding. I hate when these all turn into a Dateline episode. It bothers me <laughs> because I don't watch Dateline. <laughs> It's funny. Someone asked me the other day, hey, do you know Keith Morissette? And I said, (laughs) (laughs) don't know Keith Morissette. Yeah. yeah. But are you talking about Keith Morrison? And and he (laughs) says, yeah, that's the guy. (laughs) (laughs) So Renee was a topless dancer. So she's going to meet seedy types at the bar she dances at. I mean, that just goes with the territory. And you go into a strip joint, there's all kinds in there. Trust me. I did it when I was young. All good motives for murder are coming to light now. There's also evidence supporting a claim that Renee Poole had a craving for things like designer clothing and high-end jewelry. So for detectives, the bells are going off, one after the other, after the other, after the other. During those early statements Renee made to police, she never mentioned John Boyd Frazier as the possible masked man or her lover. Again, that's a big no-no. I mean, if you're really this this torn up wife and your husband and the father of your kid's been murdered and you had a lover, that's the first thing you're going to say if you have nothing to hide. But now during this third tape recorded interview, Renee admits that she had told Frazier, according to her, this man who was her former lover is somebody she told about the trip to Myrtle Beach she took with Brent And not only that, but where exactly they were going to stay. Then she claims Frazier told her to take Brent for a walk between midnight and 3 a.m. along the beach. At the time she discussed this with Frazier, she tells police during this third interview, she believed Frazier was kidding around and there was no way he was going to actually kill her husband. That it was pillow talk, some sort of a joke. Yet during one statement she makes, Renee adds this, quote, I didn't know for certain he would be there, but in the back of my mind, I felt like he would be there. WTF? She then tells police it was Frazier on the beach that night, but when she heard his pistol misfire, a clicking noise, she believed he was just scaring Brent. She still didn't think this was real. I I, I mean, when does she think it's real? When, you know, Brent is part of his head's blown off and he's fighting for his life. And here's a quote from her. I had my eyes closed because after I heard that gun click the first time, I thought it's a joke. He's going to run off. Renee told this to police in mid-June. You know, what's disturbing to me is what she says next. And I want to be very serious about this. She claims Brent said, please don't shoot me. And John Boyd Frazier asked him, why shouldn't I? But Brent, I think at this point, was starting to cry. And he said, because I have a two-year-old daughter that I love very much. That is just a gut punch. Yeah. I mean, the guy's pleading for his life. Mm -hmm. 
And John Boyd Frazier is actually messing with him. Why shouldn't I? It was right after that plea for his life that Frazier, Renee says, shot Brent. So 10 days after the murder, police interview Renee Poole and she has an attorney with her. Okay. They go back a couple of days later and this is when she admits to having some knowledge of a murder plot, but she doesn't have an attorney with her. Okay. And then days after her statement, Renee was arrested in the parking lot of the funeral home where Brent's wake was held and charged first with obstruction of justice. So what we have is the setup person, that little birdie on Fraser's shoulder, putting the seed in his ear and then providing all the information he needed to carry out a murder. Because without Renee, he can't kill Brent on his own if he doesn't know where they're staying, where they're going, where they're going to be. Right. It's impossible. So do you think that she meant for things to go the way they did? I think she could never leave Brent. She knew it, but she didn't want to be with him. She wanted her child for herself, and she knew that she was going to make a hundred grand if she could pull it off. That's exactly what I think. Um, mm. You know, she also didn't want to be with John Boyd Frazier. I mean, that's clear. So she's in the middle. This is like a love triangle, like a legit one. She's in the middle of this. And the way out of it is to get the lover to murder the husband and then turn on the lover and say, you did it all on your own. That's the plan. But that plan never works. If she had watched one hour of Snapped or Deadly Women, she'd have known that that never works. Ever. Renee Poole was indicted for murder in August 1999. And by November of that year, she was tried and convicted of Brent's murder. The judge admonished her, saying she was just as guilty as if she had pulled the trigger herself. John Boyd Frazier was then tried and convicted of murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and armed robbery. Yet, this is where things really start to get twisty. So let's take a quick commercial break, come back, and find out how this thing takes a 180. In August 1999, police believe Renee Poole masterminded the entire plot to kill her husband. A jury believed the case the prosecution put before them. Her boyfriend, John Boyd Frazier, with the three names, was also convicted. Yet for two decades, both have claimed they are innocent. But let's take a look at some of the other side's claims about Renee. The information about her having been abused growing up comes from a free Renee Poole website designed and run by one of Renee's supporters. One of the main issues all over this site, okay, is the media's portrayal of Renee. Exclusively speaking, the website points at true crime shows that Renee's case has been featured on. A lot of those shows yours truly has been on. <laughs> and I'll have to look but I think I commented on Renee's case on one of those shows. And the Free Renee website claims, quote, highly inaccurate and misleading are those true crime shows based on, quote, a false narrative propaganda told by the police, prosecution, and Poole family. It goes on and on. And I'm not going to get into all that. You want to read it? Go on the Free Renee Poole website. Do you know how many times I see free convicted murderer websites? 
And I'm not saying they don't have evidence on this site. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I see this all the time. And it's, you know, a person who gets involved with the person in prison who has had 15 years to think about what to say and how to get out of it. So look, take it with a grain of salt or a grain of pepper or a grain of uh, allspice, but don't take it literally. So I also want to say as someone who produces and is routinely hired as an expert for a lot of these programs, we stick to the facts of the case we are presenting. So we go by what the prosecution presented. I mean, Renee Poole was convicted of murder, period, right? According to some, the Winston-Salem-born Kimberly Renee Summy Poole had a rough childhood. She allegedly had, quote, a toxic home environment of severe emotional abuse. And at 12, she started to be constantly raped and sexually abused, end quote, by a family friend. She may have been sexually uh, assaulted and mentally abused as a child and had a hard life. And I have sympathy and I certainly don't want to ever see that happen to anybody. But that has nothing to do with these crimes that she commits later. And I'm also not here to judge her lifestyle. Renee was a topless dancer and she had multiple affairs. And those are simply unchangeable facts we have to mention. Right. But those things aren't against the law. Absolutely not against the law. And as you've heard throughout this episode, I didn't go on and on about any one of them because they're just facts of the case. She had an affair. She's a topless dancer. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. I mean, she's on trial for murder. None of the circumstances or choices in, in her life are an excuse for causing the death of someone else, especially not someone you love, especially not the father of your child. Look, the factual truth is she was tried and convicted on solid evidence that the jury believed, some of which she herself provided, okay? If I was a juror, I would have voted to convict based on the trial evidence I have seen. Same with that scumbag loser, Frazier. You know, and here is where I want to just state another couple of facts. The person who runs the free Kimberly Poole website, and this person is a staunch advocate for her innocence, says he and Renee were married in 2018. So that changes the whole ballgame now for this website. And, and this is what I'm saying with these websites. You know, yet Renee keeps going on and on about how she doesn't think Frazier killed her husband, even though she originally implicated the guy. Instead, she claims that police coerced a confession out of her and forced her under great duress into saying Frazier was the trigger man. So I just want to caution listeners here about what Renee says next. And look, it's common in these cases. Quote, the cops put words in my mouth. They forced me to say things I didn't mean. They did not look anywhere else but at me for the murder. That's simply false. That is simply false. Investigators followed the evidence. That's what they did. Investigators were worried there was a madman running around Myrtle Beach killing people. And look, coerced confessions absolutely happen. It can be an incredibly difficult task to decide if what someone said happened actually did happen, especially if they've changed their mind or recanted their statements. So coerced confessions take place, but changing your mind is not a coerced confession. 
When you change your mind about the facts of a case, that's not coercion. Coercion is, you know, depriving somebody of a bathroom, of food, keeping them for 12 hours in a room, breaking them down until they are ready to say, I did it. That's coercion. Okay. Right. Or not having legal counsel or like they're a minor and they don't have their parent available or these types of things. Happens every day. I mean, it happens every day, uh, sadly. But changing a confession after the fact, it's a lot like playing Monday morning quarterback. You know, it's like, oh, oh, Renee says, oh, shit, what did I say? I got to call him back. Uh, Well, listen, I remembered something. Oh, shit. What, What else did I say? Uh, I, I got to go back. You know, this is what we're seeing happen in this case. After all, it was Renee herself who brought Frazier into the picture, not the police. I mean, think about that. She brings this guy into the picture, not the police. That's huge. Yeah. I feel like the second you go from a stranger murdered my husband to someone I know who I've been sleeping with for the past however long was the guy. It's like, you think that you're pointing the finger away from yourself, but it's one of those moments where three are pointing back at you, you know? It's like the second you say, I know this guy. So some of the language in Renee's statements has been analyzed by legal eagles and like innocence project people. The one statement they all point to is Renee saying, she may have said to John Frazier that she and Brent were taking a vacation to Myrtle Beach and that she never admitted to a conspiracy. Key, key word there. She may have said. You know what that means? That means I did say it, okay? You're splitting hairs there. I'm sorry, but you're splitting hairs there. You know, and and that may be true. Yet prosecutors proved conspiracy at the trial. And that is what we are left with, right? So during Frazier's trial, important evidence was provided for the jury, which backs up what Renee actually told police. And to me, this is the most important evidence right here, okay? Because these are people with no skin in the game who don't know anybody who are just given information. So Mark and Donna Hobbs from Virginia were vacationing in Myrtle Beach on the night of the murder. In fact, they were staying at the Carolina Winds Hotel, that same hotel as Brent and Renee. They testified they saw a man standing near their hotel less than 30 minutes before Brent was shot. Both Mark and Donna Hobbs point to Frazier from the witness stand and say under oath, that's the guy right there. They also picked Frazier out of a police lineup back when they were first interviewed early in the next morning. On the witness stand, they described him wearing black clothes. Quote, he was staring at my wife, so I stared back, Mark Hobbs testified. My wife said she didn't want to take a walk because she was scared of this guy. So to me, that's the most damning piece of evidence, not only because, like you said, these people don't have skin in the game. They're popping in to say like, hey, we saw this guy. But they didn't just see him on the beach. They saw him in front of the hotel. Waiting. So that to me, right, exactly. Like that to me says like there's no chance that the shooter was anyone but Frazier because he wasn't just on the beach. He was at the hotel. And he has no alibi for like. 24 hours or 12 hours right. during that time. He, the, the guy, it right. was him, you know. One of Frazier's coworkers also testified that he threatened to kill Brent about four weeks before Brent was murdered. In 2000, John Frazier was convicted of killing Brent Poole. And then, you know, we have, we have the, the Supreme Court stepping in. In 2004, 
the South Carolina Supreme Court reverses Frazier's conviction, basically overturning it, based on an expert witness the judge did not allow to testify. More of a technicality than saying the guy's innocent. You know, this is what happens. If you don't follow the legal rules, you know, you can risk something being overturned. Uh, It changes nothing about the facts in the case other than the judge not allowing an expert witness to testify. The high court also believed that testimony of Frazier's coworker, of Frazier saying, quote, somebody should kill that son of a bitch, was ambiguous and in no way should have made it to jurors' ears. In short, defendants are allowed a fair trial, and the Supreme Court agreed that Frazier did not get one. However, Frazier's second trial in 2005, big surprise, did not go in his favor. He was once again convicted and sentenced to 30 years. And so as often happens in true crime, we talk so much about the killers, uh, the victim gets forgotten. And I don't want to do that here. So I just want to take a few minutes and talk about Brent Poole. So it was Renee who chased Brent. Brent had gone off to college after Renee and him met in high school. She was still in school, but dropped out to chase Brent to Nashville, where he was attending classes himself. He had graduated high school and went on for higher education. She stayed there to be with him. When he finished school, she followed him back to his hometown, by which time she was pregnant. She was 18, he was 21, and he married her to make it right. He got a decent, hardworking job as a mechanic on you know those big rig trucks to help provide for his family. And, and, and look at... Over 500 people attended the guy's funeral. 500 people. Brent was described by the pastor as, quote, happy-go-lucky guy who loved life. And and here's what I love. I mean, I, I so was this guy, but unfortunately, in older age, I'm not. Brent was called an eternal optimist. I respect that if you can hold on to that today. At the time of his death, Brent was said to be going through a spiritual renewal. A little over a month before he was murdered, Brent had, quote, rededicated his life to the Lord, according to the pastor, likely because of his desire to be a better husband and work things out with his wife. In the years after she was sent to prison, Renee developed what I call blind hindsight. I see this a lot. If I was to sit down and research this, I could pull up a hundred cases of this, and I get it a lot in my inbox. It's almost as if the years in prison twist reality for a guilty person and convince them that they are innocent, as if they believe their own lies. As the years go by, Renee starts talking about how police created a, quote, imaginary plot invented by them, focused on her being the mastermind. Quote, in my isolation, shock and depression, grief and confusion. You want to add anything else, Renee? I gave them false information. I only wanted the psychological terror to stop. And by that, she meant of the investigators interviewing her. Lastly, denial is as toxic and powerful as any negative emotion we have. Sociopaths are convincing and charming. It's a major part of their job description. Kind of like that. And looking at those post-conviction pleas of innocence and new evidence claims, I've learned through the years that you just can't escape one major fact. Murderers lie, period. Renee has been in prison and she's like leaning back, hands folded behind her head in her cell, looking at the ceiling. 
And she's saying, how the hell am I going to get out of this? I'm stuck here the rest of my life. So let me just muck up the courts with all this bullshit. And that's what she's doing. And what does she do? She starts pen palling with someone. And she gets that person to believe her lies. All right? That may take a year. She then convinces that person, hey, you know what? You've got to start putting this on a website. You ought to write a blog about this. You got to go through all the documents and you know what? I'll show you where everybody's lying. Everybody but me. And I'm the one in prison for the rest of my life. That's it for this week. Join me next time for a deep dive into a Crossing the Line with M. William Phelps case. Sources for today's episode come from South Carolina District Court Petition for a Writ of Habeas Corpus Decision, 131-2007, an article entitled, 18 Years Later, Former Exotic Dancer Convicted of Murder is Still Fighting to Be Released from Jail, by Kathy Ropp from The Horry News, Crime Hunter, Insatiable Black Widow Renee Poole Wanted What She Wanted, by Brad Hunter, Toronto Sun, Detailed Overview, FreeKimberly.com. Special thanks to Rachel McGrath for additional research. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP, Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 